Our reading this evening is from the Song of Songs, chapter 2, which may be found on page 679 in the Church Bibles. It's, the Song of Songs is between Ecclesiastes and Isaiah, which might help you to find it quickly. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his, t- in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. It has taken me, th- sorry, he has taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Listen, my lover, Look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places of the mountainside, show me your face and let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My lover is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. Amen. We are pursuing a series in the Songs of Solomon, and it was Neil Turton's idea, and he should be here tonight, and I'm standing in for him. I feel a little bit like uh, a recent experience Hannah and I had. We were given two free tickets to go to Aylesbury Audion Cinema to see Robin Hood, which was my choice. We hadn't been in the cinema for months and months, um, long, long time, in fact. And uh, while we were there, it was extremely busy. There were queues for popcorns, queues for ice cream, queues for hot dogs, sweets, all sorts of things like that. So we had a coffee and were in this queue. And a voice came to us as we were queuing. People who remained nameless and said to us, I'm surprised you're here tonight. Well, they were launching the film Sex in the City, and 
It's true. And we didn't know. We thought it's always busy like this. I mean, it's a... Well, this is not so much sex in the city or in church, but in people's lives. Because you can't read the Songs of Solomon without facing that. And facing it uh, as we shall this evening. Wherever you go in our society, whether it's the news agent, television, uh, or the posters, sex is in your face all the time. Uh, And in a way, what you have in the Songs of Solomon is an interesting perspective. In fact, a a very different one. Um, Just one final illustration. I have a good friend, uh, well, a a friend, um, who likes to phone me and talk at length. He's a Welshman. And he's talking away. And I said, you know, excuse me, I I mentioned his name. I said, I've got a sermon to prepare, and it's a sermon on erotic love. And he went quiet for the first time. (laughs) Oh, right. So we said goodbye. (laughs) So if you stay with chapter 2, and as you see from the program as it's set, there's also, it's a theme approach, not sort of verse by verse or chapter by chapter. We're looking at chapter 8, 4 to 7. So that's where we're going. Keep your Bible open because it would be quite useful just to compare and contrast. And you, I want you to think what you would say if you were reflecting on a passage like this which we have before us. It's on the theme, love and commitment. Songs of Solomon are the songs of songs. The best of songs. The greatest song. Indeed, throughout history, secular and sacred, the theme of love occupies songs and music of various kinds. It is the song of all songs simply because it is a celebration of love. But it is, unashamedly, A celebration of erotic love. John White, a very influential American, wrote a book called Eros Defiled. And the point he was making in the book was that Eros itself is God's gift. It's the defiling of it that plagues mankind and divides families and causes people to be embroiled in broken relationships. And it is this love essentially between a man and a woman, though not exclusively, that we are thinking about tonight. But it's also a celebration of mutual delight and relationship. The thing that aches in the hearts of all people of all time and all cultures and all religions is this, that we are made for relationship because God is relational. Whether married then or single, young or old, whatever our situation. What you have then in chapter 2 and verses 3 to 4, and we're looking now at this heading that love is essential, not optional or an optional extra. It would be absurd in the extreme for anybody to think that they can get through life without love. The Beatles are right, aren't they? All we need is love. Yes, but what sort of love? 
So in chapter 2, for example, and verses 3 to 4, you have this, uh, the term beloved. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among young men. There's a sense that beauty profoundly is in the eye of the beholder. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He has taken me or brings me into the banqueting hall and his banner over me is love. Beautiful language. It's allegorical. It's poetical. Love that is consummated. If you like, in, in marriage there is a fusion of two people who become one flesh. It's a powerful symbol of the love that Christ has with his church. And however distorted that concept has been in this culture or any other, it, stay, it, it still is before us, head and shoulders, as, as a very beautiful expression of God's love and God's gift. A fusion of two bodies, but more than that, of two minds and two emotions, which are often hard to define. For example, how strange is it that you think of uh, Ray and Betty Spratley, who were friends, married for over 65 years, friends for 70 years, and that they were to die within three weeks of each other. It's very strange, isn't it? Very beautiful in some ways. Two lives inextricably woven together. Enriched by God's grace. It happens to people who are even are not believers. It's not exclusive to Christian people. But nevertheless, it's a very powerful expression of love that is consummated. Not simply in the sexual act, but in terms of the totality of that love. Of course, the danger is, and I hope this makes sense to you, the danger is to have eros without agape. Have sex without love. Or conversely, to have agape without eros. And it's possible, sadly. So the point of Songs of Solomon is this, that there is the danger to have one without the other. Just to use it to, as, as a form of gratifying into a relationship which you're always taking, taking. Many marriages have perished and founded on the rocks simply because one is going into a relationship just to take, just to take, not, not putting anything back into it. But the point is, both those extremes, if you like, these dimensions rather, are wrong. Both are selfish. If the one is purely motivated by sexual motivation and nothing else, and the other one is selfish, retreating into him or herself and not concerned about anybody else. Both are wrong. We may have a view that one is worse than the other, but both are selfish. And the challenge from the Song of Songs is this. As long as there is within any society, and let's think of ours now, as long as there, there is a sexual perversion that is considered to be normative or whatever, or as long as there are superficial relationships, 
Where people only want you to get so far and no further. And don't want to get hurt, don't want to get involved. As long as you have that, then we badly need the songs of Solomon. We need this book. It's, we're not sure Solomon wrote it. It's attributed to him. Uh, we, we don't know. It doesn't really matter very much. So, love is essential, not an optional extra. Uh, Mother Teresa said the greatest poverty that she came up with in Calcutta was people who were alone. Loneliness is the great, great poverty of mankind. Not necessarily physical deprivation. doesn't mean we shouldn't be thankful for what we have here. We are made for relationship. So the second thing then is this, that love is a magnet that, that draws together, holds together, attracts, not a barrier that separates or polarizes. That's what love is like. And we're immediately struck, you know, by the sensual, overtly sensual nature of this uh, poetry. Read it for yourself. What do you make out of it? How do you understand it? And read it to say, how, how can I make sense of this wherever I am at this particular time in my life? And here's the interesting thing. This would be a good exercise. When you read it, try to see, make an observation that this allegory, this poetry, this wonderful picture language, extravagant and uh, very beautiful, highlights the five senses. Let's just have a look at this. They are frequently employed. For example, um, chapter 2 and verse... Uh, verse 2 where there's this reference to taste chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 I'm a rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley like a lily among the thorns is my darling among the maidens like an apple among the trees of the forest is my lover among young men I delight to sit in his shade look at this, in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Taste. Taste, we're told, and see that the Lord is good, but taste in human relationship and revel in that goodness. Or, can I ask you, do you leave a bad taste in people's mouth when you leave them? The sweetness of taste, of authentic relationship. Smell. Look at verse um, 10 and 11. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear in the earth. And you have this idea of, of the fragrance of nature after the rain. It's quite pungent and aromatic. Very beautiful. Well, personalize that. So that relationships are fragrant. And then there's the call to listen. Look at verse 8. Listen, my lover. <clears throat> Look, here he comes. Leaping across the mountains. Bounding over the hills. Listen. Do you see the senses? Heightened, engaged. 
And here's an interesting thing. The last of the senses, touch. When you think that this is physical and sexual, yet within this overtly sexual atmosphere, the sense of touch is least in evidence. That's very interesting. It's as if, with all of this in-your-face erotic love, there is also a, a, a tantalizing restraint. But there are things that are private and ought to be so. Tantalizing restraint. So you see in verse 6, his left arm is under my head, his right arm embraces me. Love is a magnet that draws together, not a barrier that holds people back and separates. Or it might be that the poet wants to leave your imagination fertile that you begin to think for yourself that it's not just like looking at endless pictures and films and there it is and you need no imagination. I wonder if you could do the exercise sometime, particularly you can do it on radio for listen to a play and as you listen to it your imagination is quickened and awakened and challenged. It's very different to watching a film. Of course you can have both. Listen, he says. So there you have these five senses that, that are frequently employed in the context of love. And yet, I say to you, this tantalizing restraint, the sense of touch is the least in the poetic imagery. And yet, you have this imagery heightened again. Look at verse 12 and 13, just very quickly. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. You see, from nature to the natural relationship that finds again further completeness and consummation. It's a very beautiful book. So I urge you just to, uh, it's not easy to preach on, I, I can, because it's, there, isn't, there is a theme, but you, you, you have to look at these things as they unfold. The last um, heading is, uh, love is long-term relationship. Long-term relationship, not a quick return. Long term. Let's just have a quick look at chapter 8 because this is the theme as it's set. And um, what do you make of verse 6? Place me like a seal over your heart. Like a seal on your arm. And look at this. For love is as strong as death. Death is pretty strong, isn't it? Love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Love carries with it an inherent threat, and it's this. 
that when its arousal, its awakening, if you like, is not accompanied by commitment, or, verse 6, a seal, sexual love must realize that it is also to do with other people. Family, obligations, responsibilities. And that is not to negate true love. Actually, it is to strengthen it. However, think of it like this. When passion and commitment become separate, they're perfectly legitimate, but when they are separated, and as we know from other people, and it's not to judge, then jealousy and its destructive effects engulf the lovers and those around them. However passionate the past has been, now there is a wedge between their passion and commitment and some of the most grievous, embittered relationships of those that have been the closest. Here's another interesting thing as well in a culture that is entirely male-dominated. We have a little gem here that is quite liberating. The idea is that male and female, by definition, are different but equal. Equal in intensity. And out of that comes a very lovely word. Look at verse 10 that speaks of contentment. Verse 10. I'm a wall. And my breasts are like towers. Thus I become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Contentment. In a world where women were merely the shackles of other men with no rights. Here is a bold depiction of, if you like, what we can call an egalitarian relationship that is equal in every sense. I mean, this is revolutionary. But you see it's in the context, not of politics or religion, but of human love. Human love. Now, let me make a sentence to you because soon this is to bring us round the Lord's table. Because so often we, we, we can be as Christians where we pigeonhole things. We say, that belongs there, that belongs there, and, and neither the twain shall meet. But it's not like that. Listen to this sentence. I, I just write it out just to be clear. To the extent that faithful, erotic relationships between men and women are tokens of the life-giving relationship between God and his people. Perhaps a previous generation would be shocked at that because of their cultural view of sex. Let's say that again. To the extent that faithful erotic relationships between men and women are tokens of the life-giving relationship between God and his people, love truly is stronger than death. And that is why Jesus could say, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Not simply appealing, appealing to the emotion which will ebb and flow, but to the will whereby we say, my Jesus, I love you, I know you are mine. 
I know you are mine and I am yours. And in the love of God for humankind, the shalom, the, the contentment of salvation is made possible. And, and how often at the graveside do I read out, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We take nothing out of the world. I want to uh, quote, I've used this quote lots of times, some of you will recognize it. This is a fuller one from C.S. Lewis in his book called The Four Loves. And what he is doing here, he points out this for us. The toll of life, of of living a self-centered life can be extremely high. You pay a high toll for being a selfish person. So he says this. Try to concentrate on on this because C.S. Lewis is highly distilled in his thinking, as you know. There is no safe investment. This is not the stocks and shares now. This is relationship. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. What you must do is this, deliberately, with calculating decision, wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all all entanglements, lock it safe in the casket, or indeed, he says, the coffin of your selfishness. There it is, safe. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, It will change. Granted, he says, it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable and irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and agitations of love is hell. And then he says, this is C.S. Lewis, not me, he says finally, which road will you choose to travel? The road of selfishness or the road of selflessness? Only the latter path leads to the best that God can offer. Isn't that a wonderful quote? And it fits in so well here with all that we're thinking about. Well, let's wrap this up very quickly just to conclude. Yes, the Songs of Solomon is a celebration of erotic love, for sure, between a man and a woman. But it's also, it's also an illustration of love between Christ and his church. And we must make that connection. That connection especially as we come round the Lord's table. So let's look at chapter 8 to just comment on a few verses and then we're finished. Chapter 8, verse 7, here is the strength of love. Look at that. How humbling and reassuring. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, 
it would be utterly scorned. Strength of love. Verse 13. The delight of a praying Christian or a praying church. What do you make of this? I think here is the lover. You who dwell in the gardens. This is chapter 8 verse 13. You who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance. Let me hear your voice. It's like a, a soliloquy. It's like being spiritual. Not simply uh, factual or cerebral. It's a strong emotional language. And prayer is an emotional expression, isn't it? And then verse 14 is a yearning for the presence of Jesus. Come away, my lover. And be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. And finally, chapter 5 and verse 2 and verse 6. The danger of failing to respond to the knocking of the beloved, of the lover. The failure. Chapter 5 and verse 2. I sleep, but my heart was awake. Listen. This is very beautiful language, isn't it? Listen. My lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. And so on and so forth. And verse 6. I opened for my lover, but my heart was left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. Unrequited love? Or, let's bring it into the church, not necessarily into the, the, that relationship. Say, how much would we notice as Christian people if the presence of Jesus was not with us? The danger of failing to respond to his knocking. And it's, it's a reminder of how the New Testament comes to an end. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. It's the same language. I know some people have over-spiritualized the songs of song. Perhaps we are dangerous and have under-spiritualized. Trying to get it right isn't easy. But there it is. This, is. this is the Lord coming to us. Knocking at our hearts. Knocking at the church. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, what will I do? I will come in and what? Restore that broken fellowship. I may sup with him and he with me. And in that language, the culture of being together and eating together and talking together. Not like in our society, people are grazing, just eating something quick in front of the television in one room and all over the place. Being together, interfacing, having quality relationship. All of which, I say to you, is a rebuke of our lack of passion. We value what we do, and we do what we value. And those things tell us about our values. Our passion, our commitment, our love, our submission, our celebration, and our peace. Of course, we are human. And by being human, I mean we are not perfect. 
I, I, this is a quote that some years ago that uh, I gave from this journal of uh, John Wesley. Uh, it's, perhaps it might be a bit discouraging to some of you, but let me just read it as we close. He's saying he's, he kept a, a very extensive diary, uh, John Wesley in particular, and he says this. This is the time in 1771. At this point, though it pains me, I must relate the account regarding the consequences of my marriage. I've put it off long enough. If we ever properly loved each other, brackets, and I doubt that we did, it lasted but a few months. He speaks about two problems, his wife's jealousy and that he was married to the cause. There's no impropriety here. Just people who just never spent time with each other. And then he says in 1771 she decided to leave proposing never to return. I could only comment non iam reliqui non dimissi non revocable which means I did not desert her I did not send her away. I will never call her back. Now, isn't that quite something one of the great leaders who has influenced uh, the, the, the cause of Christ globally yet has feet of clay? And when you hear a sermon like this, it isn't to condemn, it isn't to say how imperfect we are. It is to, to admit our failings and our weaknesses and come back to God and trust Him and to see that these are his good gifts to us. And rejoice in them. And retain passion and commitment. And a love that satisfies and fulfills.